0: All right. Well, good morning. It is good to be with you. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at River City. If you are new or visiting, just want to say welcome. I'm glad that you would join us this morning. Glad you could be here with us. Uh, Looking forward to opening God's Word with you guys together this morning. We are on the front end of a study taking a look at the first three chapters in the book of Revelation, and the bulk of which primarily consists of seven short letters that Jesus himself writes to local churches uh, in various cities throughout the, the, the Roman province of Asia. And uh, that's kind of a modern-day Turkey, seven cities kind of in this modern-day Turkey area. And at the time that that Jesus writes these letters to these churches, uh, things were not really going particularly well for any of them, really. Um, False teaching uh, and temptation towards idolatry and immorality and spiritual complacency and apathy and intensifying persecution were all things that to various degrees each of these churches were, were struggling with. And on top of that, their founding pastors, the apostles, they, they've all been martyred except for the apostle John, who has instead merely been exiled to a desolate island in the middle of the Mediterranean. And so things are, things are hard. It is a difficult set of situations and circumstances. And so it's in the midst of these circumstances that the risen, ruling, reigning King Jesus comes and appears to his friend John on the island of Patmos. And he comes with crucial messages for his people crucial, important messages for them. They were were messages that were meant to comfort them and to strengthen them, to encourage them and to empower them towards faithfulness and obedience to him, even in the midst of all of the difficult things that they were going through. But they were also messages that were meant to correct them and to rebuke them and to call them to repentance and repentance from idolatry and immorality and complacency. You see, they were messages that these churches desperately needed to hear. And as we've seen the last few weeks, that there are messages as well that you and I need to hear and to pay attention to as well. In fact, every letter ends with the invitation, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You see, because the reality is that every church in every age is called to hear and heed the words that Jesus has for his churches. You see, because the reality is, is that we might be a lot like them or we might easily become a lot like them. And that's especially true this morning as we read the third letter to the church in Pergamum. Like the church in Smyrna that we studied last week, this church was, was facing persecution for their allegiance to Jesus as king. And on one hand, what we'll see this morning is Jesus commending this young church, encouraging them. Uh, he's, he commends them for being faithful in the midst of suffering and for remaining true to him. And yet on the other hand, we're going to see Jesus criticizing them and confronting them. You see, while they had not renounced Christ, there were some in their church that had bought into the lie that they could simultaneously worship other gods and engage in aspects of pagan worship that surrounded them and yet worship Jesus at the same time. And Jesus, the one who knows all and sees all, the sovereign king of all, he comes to them with a message. It's a reminder that That partial faithfulness is actually unfaithfulness. And that partial obedience is actually disobedience. That partial loyalty is actually disloyalty. And that the compromises that they are making personally or that they're permitting in their church, they're not only corrupting their faith, they are crippling their witness in the city that God has sent them to. And that if they didn't address these corrupting and crippling compromises, then Jesus himself would be forced to deal with it. You see, and so as we will see this morning, as we study Jesus' letter to the church in Pergamum, is that if we want to worship Jesus faithfully, it will require that we worship him exclusively and uncompromisingly. If we want to worship Jesus faithfully, it will require that we worship him exclusively and uncompromisingly. And so to that end, let's pray as we study our passage this morning and we see Jesus' letter to the church in Pergamum. King Jesus, we come before you this morning and we are grateful for your words. God, we are thankful just as we sung that they are words of life for us. God, in this morning we come to a letter that is challenging and that is hard one that speaks to a a church that was in the midst of struggle and trial and in the midst of a world that was opposed to their faith in you and their exclusive allegiance to you. And so, Jesus, we come in the midst of a world that is as well opposed to our exclusive allegiance to you. And so we come humbly, King Jesus, and we ask that you might graciously encourage us and comfort us, yet as well that you might also correct us, that you might call us to faithfulness in you and to you, unto you. And so Jesus, we just humbly say that we don't have what we need outside of your spirit doing that work in us this morning. God, I can't speak rightly without you empowering me. We cannot hear rightly and respond rightly to your word without you being the one that enables that to happen. And so we come humbly before you this morning, King Jesus. God, for our good and for your glory, God, would you shape our hearts and minds this morning so that we might increasingly look more and more like you. We really need you, King Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we're in the third letter that we see in Revelations 1 through 3, beginning in chapter 2, verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write These are the words of him who has the sharp double edged sword I know where you live where Satan has his throne, and yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some of you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. And likewise, you also uh, have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. For whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. The word of the Lord. See, Pergamum uh, was a very difficult city to follow Jesus in. It was an affluent and prominent city in the in the region for a number of reasons. First, it was is it was an important intellectual hub. It was home to an enormous library that housed more than two hundred thousand volumes in it. It was also home to the famous healing ministries of the priests of Asclepius. Kind of it's kind of like ancient alternative medicine spots, like. If you're really into uh, essential oils, you would have loved that place, right? Like, would have been your jam, right? Most significantly, Pergamum was the region's leading religious center. There were temples for the four main gods in the Greco-Roman world, Athena and Asclepius and Dionysus and Zeus. But beyond all of that, and even more significantly, was Pergamum's devotion to the worship of the Roman emperors and the imperial cult like we talked about last week, like Smyrna, Smyrna, like Smyrna, Pergamum was a center for Roman emperor worship, and the imperial cult. and Christians here were persecuted harshly. They were persecuted harshly for their refusal to engage in such worship. In fact, the suffering that Jesus had foreshadowed last week when he spoke to the church in, per, in, in Smyrna, it was already taking place here in Pergamum. In fact, one of a faithful man named Antipas had already been put to death here for his allegiance to Jesus. And so the church in this city is surrounded by a culture that promoted and embraced the the mental and physical and spiritual worship of everyone and everything except Jesus. In light of all this, Jesus refers to this city as the place where Satan dwells, where he has his throne. see, Pergamum was a hard city to worship Jesus faithfully in. It was a hard city to worship Jesus faithfully in. And so it's into this context that Jesus introduces himself as the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. It's an image that refers to John's description of him in chapter 1 as well as the, the way that the letter concludes, references this image. And in the ancient world, uh, the imagery of the sword, it symbolized, it, it, was, a, it was an idea for the authority to, the, to exercise judgment and so Jesus here uses this image as an affirmation of his ultimate judicial authority. See, he is the final judge. He is the arbiter of truth and righteousness. He is the one who is the author of what is right and good and true, and he is the judge. And his introduction serves two, in, in two ways. First, it serves as a confrontation of the Roman officials who misused their right of the sword to persecute Christians. For it was not their authority which was the, had the final say, it was his. But as well, it serves as a warning for this church that they would turn from their corrupting and crippling compromises. See, it was more important that they feared Christ's sword instead of that of Rome's. And so Christ introduces himself as the authoritative judge who sees and knows all and promises to execute just judgment against all who would oppose him, against all who would sin against him, But before confronting this church for the sin that's corrupting them, he commends them. He commends them for their faithfulness and their loyalty in the the midst of hard places, in hard circumstances. Verse 13 reads this way, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You didn't renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Jesus says, I know where you live. I am not unaware, I am not ignorant, I am not far off, I am not blind, I see you. I see the reality of the city that you are in. Like we talked about earlier, Pergamum was a hard place to be a Christian. While Satan may have visited Ephesus or worked in Smyrna, Jesus says that he dwells here in Pergamum. It was a culture entrenched in the worship of everyone and everything except Jesus. It was ripe with demonic activity and spiritual warfare. The enemy had a firm foothold in this city. And Pergamum Christians were surrounded by political and cultural and spiritual and religious forces that opposed their devotion to Jesus broadly, extensively, and forcefully. So much so that Antipas, who refused to compromise his belief or his behaviors, was killed. We don't know much about this guy named Antipas other than what we see here in this letter, but that he was a faithful witness who was martyred for his exclusive allegiance to Jesus, it is likely that he refused to drop incense at the altar of the emperor and to declare his allegiance to Caesar as God and Lord. You see, for a city that seemed to permit the worship of everyone and everything, they were intensely hard on those who refused to worship their gods. Those who who would only worship one God exclusively. You see, and while we are not facing the kinds of repercussions or persecution that this church was by any stretch of the imagination, on a worldview level, the world that we live in is not altogether different. You see, we live in a world where everyone is encouraged to worship whatever they deem right. We live in a world where everyone is encouraged and allowed to speak their truth, so long as you never claim that the truth you have is the truth. For if you do, you'll be immediately Rejected and ostracized as intolerant and closed-minded. And so it's in the face of this kind of opposition, this intense opposition and severe persecution that the church in Pergamum has remained true to Jesus. They have not denied his name. They have not let their circumstances govern their allegiance to Jesus. And yet despite their courageous allegiance to Jesus the believers in Pergamum were not faultless before the Lord. We read in verse 14 and 15, we see Jesus' criticism of this young church, their permissive beliefs and their behaviors that he sees in this church. Verse 14 begins, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some of you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. And, Likewise, you have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, and it's at some point that some of you are thinking, this is exactly why I don't read the Bible. I have no idea what any of these things are, or whatever is going on, or who any of these people are, and I'm with you. I needed to do some study on my own to figure out what was, what was being referenced here, but let's not miss the important things that are here, because there are a few names that we might not recognize. Balaam, it turns, is is the most famous pagan prophet in the Old Testament, and his name is synonymous with spiritual and moral compromise. The story goes something like this: in Numbers twenty-two and twenty-five, God has delivered His people out of slavery in Egypt, and He is bringing them into the Promised Land, and. And uh, slowly but surely, and he is defeating armies for his people all along the way. And so there's this fear about the Israelites that is kind of taking hold amongst the surrounding nations. And, and uh, Balak, who is the king of Moab, one of the Israelites' constant enemies, he, he has heard about the miraculous things that God's done for his people. And so he, out of fear, he goes and hires kind of this freelance mercenary prophet named Balaam. He doesn't really care who the good guys are, who the bad guys are. He's just in it for the money. He's kind of like that... Codebreaker guy in the 8th Star Wars movie, right? That they're trying to get to hack them into the emperor's ship or whatever it is, right? He's just following the money, right? He's just following the money. He'll do whatever it takes. Anyways, Balak wants Balaam here. He wants him to put a curse on the Israelites. But on three different occasions, when when Balaam, when Balaam sought to curse Israel, God spoke to him and instead gave him a blessing for the Israelites instead. Which, as you can imagine, didn't go over awesome you know, with Balak or Balaam or any of them. They're frustrated, right? And so when, so when overt cursing failed, Balaam instead advised the king, Balak, to take another course of action. Instead of overt opposition towards God's people, he would encourage him to take a subversive opposition towards God's people. In Numbers 25, Balaam advises the king to make friends with the Israelites and then basically to get them to curse themselves by inviting them to participate in the Moabite worship ceremonies and feasts which involve all kinds of spiritual idolatry and sexual immorality. You see, because what Balaam knew is that if he could get the Israelites to compromise their beliefs, to compromise their, on their behaviors, then God would withdraw his blessing and judge them. And his plan worked. If the Israelites fell right into the trap, And Jesus, this morning, he's saying to this church, the same kind of thing is happening in Pergamum. As one commentator writes, Satan had not been able to destroy them by persecuting them as the roaring lion, but he was making inroads as the deceiving serpent. You see, there was a ton of societal pressure to compromise their beliefs and their behaviors, to to engage in the worship of other gods and Roman emperors and the debauchery that so doing involved especially when not participating in those things had such high societal and economic repercussions for them. And Antipas, he had refused to compromise and was martyred, but others were starting to take another way. Some in the church were beginning to basically say, what's so wrong with being friendly to Rome? Is is it really so bad What's the harm in just putting a pinch of incense in the altar to the emperor and and just affirming your loyalty to him? Yes, let's be faithful to Jesus. I'm on that team, but can't we just just have a little sexual fun while we're doing it? Just just a little bit of fun along the way? Everyone else is doing it. Why why shouldn't we? And so what's happening is that compromise was, was creeping in and the distinction between God's people and the world around them was beginning to be blurred. And Jesus' words come to this church saying, on the one hand, you're being faithful in the midst of suffering. Some of you are even willing, to, willing to, to die for not rejecting my name. Yet on the other hand, there are some of you who are being led astray. You're falling right into Balaam's trap. You are compromising aspects of your beliefs and your behaviors, and it is corrupting your faith. It is crippling your witness as my people in your city. Jesus comes to them, he says, you cannot worship other gods and me at the same time. You cannot worship me and at the same time willingly participate in sinful behavior that surrounds you. They do not mix. They cannot go together. They're oil and water. They they will not work. Jesus says, I demand an exclusive loyalty. An absolute uncompromising allegiance. Allegiance. You see, the reality is that like Christians in Pergamum, it is easy to normalize the beliefs and the behaviors of non-Christians around us and to allow our own to be, to be compromised in the meantime. You see, of course, we don't live in a culture we face, uh, where we come face-to-face with the visible idols that the, that the church in Pergamum was. But there are cultural pressures that if we compromise to, we, will cause us to lose our distinctiveness as Christians and thus our witness for Christ as his people in the world. You see, in, in the, the context of our passage, there are two, two frames that, the, that, the, that Jesus is writing, and he says you cannot compromise doctrinally. You cannot compromise doctrinally. In our world, it constantly is the thing to say that Jesus is not just a way to God. He is not just one of many. No, Jesus is God, and faith in him is the one right way, the one way to to right relationship with God. Truth is not relative. We are not the source of it. We don't determine what the Bible means. God does, and so he is the author. And we want to find out what he says and what he meant so that we might apply his truth to our lives, not to seek to apply our context to the scripture to get it to say whatever we would want it to say. Jesus says you cannot compromise doctrinally. <clears throat> for he said he was the way, the truth, the life, not one of many. And he goes on to, to tell this church to imply to them that they cannot compromise ethically either. This passage highlights specifically sexual immorality. You see, when it comes to sexuality, God's, God's design for his people is clear. Sexual intimacy is reserved for one man and one woman inside the context of marriage and all sexual activity outside of those bounds is out of line with God's design and his guide for his people. You see, the reality is that sex is an act of worship. It's not just a physical thing, it is a spiritual thing. That's why Romans 12 says, encourages us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, not just our souls as sacrifices. He says that is your act of worship you see, and with our sexuality, we are either worshiping Jesus or we are worshiping something else. And Jesus says, I, I, I call for an absolute allegiance, full obedience. See, what we cannot miss is that God has called his people to be distinct, that we might show the world that Jesus is better and the life that he offers is better. And the way that he offers is better. See, and when we compromise our beliefs and our behaviors to accommodate the culture that is around us, we cripple our ability to live as Jesus' witnesses in the world. And we show that we fail to show that Jesus is better and that the life that he offers is better. And we, we fall right into that Balaam esque trap that Satan has set for us. See, the reality is that Satan wants to silence Jesus' church. And persecution is not his only tool. You see sometimes simple, Satan will simply turn to perversion instead of overwhelming the church by force from the outside. He said sometimes he just simply destroys it from the inside by infiltrating it with the world's values until it becomes diluted unlike anything and so it's not any different. You see but the problem here in Pergamum wasn't just that some were being led into Satan's trap, but that the church as a whole was permitting this spirit of compromise to happen. They were just casually accepting it. And so Jesus' words in verse 16 are meant as a confrontation. He confronts this church in the midst of their sin. Verse 16, he says, repent, therefore, Otherwise, I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. In essence, Jesus is rebuking this church for being impure. He, he doesn't just condemn those who compromise their own beliefs and behaviors. He, he, the entire church here is being held accountable for permitting this spirit of compromise to happen amongst them. And he calls all of them to repent. See, repentance begins with confessing our sin, with acknowledging our, uh, that our ideas and our attitudes and our, our behaviors are out of line with God's way and his rule. And it begins by acknowledging those things, not making excuses, not shifting the blame, but confessing the reality of those things to God. But it doesn't stop there. You see, confession is just the beginning. It acknowledges that we're going the wrong direction, but we must as well. Repentance calls us to turn around not to merely slow down the direction that we're going, not, not merely to, to just kind of take a little bit of a turn, but instead to turn around, to reject the direction that we have been going as away from God and to turn and face him and run towards him. You see, for some in this church, this meant an about-face in their beliefs and their behaviors. They they would need to reject their willingness to worship other gods alongside of Jesus and and the moral compromises that went along with that worship. But for others, this meant that they would need to do an about-face with their attitudes and their relationships with others who were in the church. And instead of Instead of having a hands-off, permissive attitude towards faith and faithfulness of others, they were to engage in the hard work of discipleship and spiritual discipline. Not in a heavy-handed, domineering kind of way, not in anger, not not out of guilt, not, not trying to shame people into right behavior, but lovingly and persistently calling their brothers and sisters to faith in and faithfulness to Jesus as King. That is hard to do. That's hard to do. I remember a while back, there was a, a couple who had begun coming to River City and, and they were uh, figuring out just what it meant for them to follow Jesus and, and what it looked like to, to be a part of him. And they had really loved getting involved in the church and, and they had really enjoyed being a part of what was going on here. And, and, um, and uh, the, the, um, the girlfriend in the situation, she wanted to, to participate in the worship team. And we were excited that they wanted to be involved, but I needed to sit down with her, and I needed to say, you know, right now you you are living with your boyfriend, and you don't see anything that's wrong with that. You see, but following Jesus, it demands that we surrender all of our lives under his good authority. And I want to call you to that, and I want to invite you to the life that is found in submitting your sexuality under Jesus' good authority. And I prayed for weeks about that conversation. It wasn't a conversation I entered into lightly. It wasn't a conversation I just went into just willy-nilly. And I prayed graciously that God by his spirit would, would gently come alongside them and would, that they would see the life and the joy and the invitation towards goodness that Jesus had for them in, in submitting to his, his guidelines for sexuality. But unfortunately, they did not. You see, those conversations are hard. And sometimes they don't always result in, what, in, the, in the reactions and the responses that we want to have happen. You see, but Jesus calls his church to an exclusive loyalty. And he calls the leaders in his church to an absolute obedience unto him. And so we must be careful as well. Not to just ha- simply permit an attitude of, have an attitude of permissiveness amongst our church. I just need you to hear this this morning. Wherever you are at this morning in following Jesus and learning to surrender your life to him and put your life under his good authority, I need you to hear this. You are welcome here as a part of this community. You're welcome here. But the reality is, is that God's word offends us. The reality is that God's word is opposed to our default views of the way that we engage with our world and the life around us. In many ways, our lives and our default modes stand out of line with his purposes. And you need to know that I'm going to call you and all who would seek to follow Jesus to an obedience to him. Not because I want to guilt you, not because... I want to shame you because I want, you, I want to extend an offer of life to you. You see, God calls us to repentance. And his call to repentance is good news. See, it's an invitation to return to God instead of to be judged by him. It is an invitation to walk with him instead of walk away from him. It is an invitation to life and blessing. And so Jesus calls this young church to repent, to repent of their spirit of compromise. And they were free to ignore these words, but if they did, there would be real consequences. Jesus would come. Verse 16 says that he would wage war against them with the sword of his mouth, that he would fight against them with the sword of his mouth. Jesus tells this church, if you do not deal with the spirit of compromise, I will. I will do it. See, Jesus is zealous for his own name and for his glory. And he will not stand idly by while those who claim to represent him tarnish his name through spiritual corruption and and ethical and moral compromises. One commentator writes, Antipas felt the sword of Rome, but the church at Pergamum would feel the sword of Christ, the word, if they did not repent. See, King Jesus is worthy of our worship. And he is the one who is building his church. And he is zealous for his name and for his glory. And he invites us into that. But he will not stand for those who will reject him, who will tarnish his name. But the letter, it doesn't end there. It doesn't end with a threat of judgment. It ends instead with a promise of covenant with the promise of the reward for those who will repent, those who will heed Jesus' words and reject a doctrinal and ethical compromise. And it's here at the end of the letter that we see the antidote for compromise is not primarily fear of judgment. Instead, it is about laying hold of the better promises that Jesus offers his people The first of which is that he satisfies in the midst of trial. Verse 17, he says, To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. You see, God fed the Israelites in the desert when they had nothing, when they felt all alone, when they had no resources and nothing to eat. God feeds them. He sustains them. And he gave them what they needed to make it through because he is the provider and he is the sustainer. He is the bread of life who has what they need. And Jesus promises to do the same for those who would heed his words Here. By refusing to compromise in a world that continually entices us to indulge our appetites, we are not only sustained by Jesus, but we declare that He is the one who really satisfies. That He is the one who has what we really need. But it's not just the promise of sustenance and satisfaction that keeps us from compromise. It's the reminder that Jesus, the ultimate judicial authority, has the power both to acquit and to embrace us. Verse 17 ends this way. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. And there's not absolute certainty about what this imagery is alluding to, but many commentators agree that that a likely possibility is that it's referring to the white stones that jurors would lay down when they voted to acquit someone in the trial that they were a part of. And Jesus' promise here is that those who would heed his words, that he would acquit them, that he would declare them as ones who are faithful, as ones who are innocent, but more than that, to embrace those who would respond to his call, to his faithfulness. He promises to give them a new name, to write a new name on that stone, an intimate name that is between him and them. It's a name of close fellowship. I don't know about you, but sometimes to the people you're most close to, you have names that you use just together, Right? Names you don't always use out in public, names that other people might not know, but they're names that are personal, they're names that are endearing. Maybe it's a name for your wife or your kids that only you use. And you use it not because it's it's just some weird random thing, but you use it because it's a it it communicates an intimacy. It communicates a closeness and a nearness. And Jesus says, I'll give you a white stone. Proof of my acquittal of you. your, Your judgment as innocent. And I will embrace you with an intimate name. You see, it doesn't matter what this world says about us. It doesn't matter if we are acquitted by the court of public opinion or embraced by peers. It matters what Jesus says. It matters what He thinks the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the ultimate judicial authority and the loving Father and His judgment of us, His sweet embrace of us. That's what drives our lives. You see, and if you have put your faith in Jesus and then God looks at you and He sees you as He sees His Son perfect and beloved and well-pleased, enjoyed, treasured, fully loved, and in hearing that on the final day, feeling that warm embrace of the Father who speaks your personal name to him, experiencing the promise that Jesus made to you that you lived your life in light of, that's the antidote. That is the antidote to a life of compromise. It's a reminder that that is the reality that awaits you. Not because you deserved it, not because you earned it, Not because you were special, but because the great king of the universe chose to love you. Chose to empower you to be faithful unto him. That's the antidote to a life of compromise. It is as well the recipe for a life of faithfulness. When we lay hold of the better promises that Jesus holds out for us. The invitation to satisfy and to totally acquit. To sweetly embrace. And when we take communion, we're reminding ourselves of the future that Jesus has secured for us. Reminding ourselves of the promises that he has made to us, that he has secured for us by his own body and blood, which were broken and shed for us so that we might be satisfied in him and acquitted by him and embraced by him. See, communion does not make you right with God. It doesn't change your status or your standing with him in any way. Instead, it's an opportunity. It's a chance for us to remember. Remember to remember all that Jesus has done, to remember the promises he lays out for us, the eternal perspective which shapes our lives lived unto him so that in remembering who he is and all that he has done, we might be filled with a confidence and a love and a gratitude for him that overflows into a life of steadfast obedience lived unto him. The bread and the juice are in the back. There's a table on your left and on your right. And during our time of worship, I'd encourage you to go back and take communion. You dip the bread in the juice and you put it in your mouth. That's how you take communion here at River City. And, And so as we sing, as we worship, as we remember the gospel together in song, if you've put your trust in Jesus, if he is the one in which you worship exclusively, if your desire is to worship him uncompromisingly, then go back and take communion not because you've always done it perfectly, but because he has done it perfectly on your behalf and wants to empower you in response to him to live unto him. But if not this morning, if Jesus is not yet the one who holds your allegiance, or if this morning you, you sense that you are full of a spirit of compromise, I'd encourage you, Hold off on taking communion this morning. Instead, come to Jesus. Speak to him. Speak with him. Ask him to move in your heart. Ask him to shape your attitudes and your beliefs and your behaviors. He is the one that you need. Right relationship with him is what you long for most. And he is the one who satisfies that need for you. And so as we take communion, as we sing, I'd encourage all of us. Talk with God this morning. Maybe there is a spirit of compromise that he is calling you to repent of. Maybe it's one in your own actions, in your own behaviors, in your own beliefs. Or maybe it's so in the relationships that you have with others. And whatever it is, I would encourage you, ask God to give you wisdom about how to respond. How to respond faithfully and graciously. You see, the reality is that all of us are sinners. And all of us need Jesus' redeeming, renewing, transforming work in our lives. And the invitation for us this morning is that we might respond to the offer of renewal that he has for us. That we would turn from sin and turn towards him. That we might embrace our allegiance to him, uncompromising exclusively for our good and for his great glory in all the world. Let's pray. King Jesus, we come before you this morning, God, and we're humbled. God, we're humbled because the reality is, is that far too often our lives are characterized by compromise rather than exclusive loyalty towards you. God, and we admit that to you. We admit that it's so easy to, to normalize the beliefs or the behaviors of the world around us and to allow those things to compromise our allegiance towards you. And so, King Jesus, we ask that you be graciously by your spirit to help point out in our hearts where that is happening. God, not so that we would feel guilty, not so that we would feel shame, but instead so that, that you might graciously enable us to repentance, that you might enable us to turn from sin and turn towards you, to, instead, of, instead of running away from you, to run towards you and walk with you, King Jesus. And we come before and we just say, we need you to, to help us to see those things in our own hearts. God, often we are blind. God, for those of us who might be—you might be convicting and calling to a repentance of an attitude of just permitting a compromising spirit in others. God, I pray that you'd be gracious to show us how to gently come alongside our brothers and sisters. God, not in a domineering way, not in a forceful way, but one that is persistent and in love, calling each other to faithful faithfulness to you and faith in you, King Jesus. God, help us to be a people who is satisfied by you and who worships you exclusively and uncompromisingly. Help us to do that for your name.